So the big question is this. How are candidates like us, who don't have big money donors, who are spending money out of our own pockets to get elected, how do we get our message out, raise enough money to win, target the right voters, and yet still remain true to what got us into politics to begin with? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Matt Wyatt, and welcome to Campaign Secrets. Hello, everybody. This is Matt Wyatt, and welcome to another episode of Campaign Secrets. In today's episode, I interview Johns Hopkins University political science professor Harai Han, who is someone who's a master at studying people movement campaigns, about what draws people to a movement, how do you motivate and organize a group of people to go out and work for your campaign and work for your cause. She co-authored a great book uh, that came out a few years ago that I've recommended to a lot of people called Groundbreakers, How Obama's 2.2 Million Volunteers Transformed Campaigning in America. And it really examined the 2008 campaign and how the Obama campaign motivated and recruited and organized these volunteers to go out there door to door, build their precinct organizations uh, to really deliver on getting the vote out. And it's a great book. I recommend it to anybody. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat. It doesn't matter if you're running for city council somewhere because you really need to, to figure out how to put together, you know, an organization. You know, how do you recruit people? How do you motivate people? And that's where Professor Hahn is really, really has some great insights is what motivates people to get involved in a political campaign. Because, you know, just volunteering for political campaign, it's something that the average person has never does in their whole lifetime. So how do you motivate somebody? How do you get into their head and convince them to come aboard and to help your effort? And uh, she offers some great insight in this interview, and I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, today I have the good fortune of interviewing one of my favorite authors, and uh, that's Rita Hahn. She's a professor of political science and also a research director for the P3 uh, Research Lab at Johns Hopkins University. She, she wrote one of my favorite books called Groundbreakers, uh, how Obama's 2.2 million volunteers transformed campaigning in America. And Professor Hahn specializes in community, community organizing, really people-centered politics. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love that term. I'm going to steal it. Go right, go right ahead. Well, welcome to the show. And uh, let me ask you this. How did you get started in this type of field? It's very yeah. unusual. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, so how did I get started in the field? Um, you know, to be honest, I grew up um, not being interested in politics at all. Uh, my parents were immigrants. I grew up as a daughter of Korean immigrants in Houston, Texas. And, you know, I think my family, like a lot of other immigrant families, like they're just trying to make it and sort of figure out what it meant to live in the United States. And so politics was not really something that we talked about at the dinner table. Um, but when I was in college, I got involved with a student organization that um, was not about politics, but the, organ the student organization got into a fight with the university. And so we decided to organize a protest um, because, of, because of that. And that, and as a result of that, someone said, hey, you know, you should take this class on community organizing. And I didn't really even know what that meant or what it was, but I thought, sure, you know, I'll sign up for that class because it'll, you know, help me figure this thing out. So I signed up for the class and all of a sudden I realized, you know, gosh, um, you know, the people who are, who are thinking about organizing, it's not just this question of how do we get people to take action, but it's this question of how do we think about, as you put it, a people-centered politics um, where you can put um, 
people's interests and their needs at the center and then build a politics around that. And, and there's a group of people that had a whole analysis of how that works. And that's really how I got introduced to it. And so went on from there to go work on some political campaigns. I work in Washington, D.C. And, and get involved with the political landscape in a variety of different ways. And so by the time I went to grad school, you know, I really knew that what I wanted to do was to try to understand um, how that people-centered politics works and have the opportunity to kind of think back, step back and think more broadly about the big questions that you can't do when you're caught up in the day-to-day of running a campaign. Gotcha. So when did you get involved with the Obama campaign? What, what sparked that idea to, to follow them? Was it at the very beginning when you, we saw that maybe they were doing something different? What tipped you off that they were doing something different? I mean, honestly, um, so let's see, early on, um, one of the jobs that I'd had early on before grad school was working for Bill Bradley. And um, a lot of, and worked, I worked on his presidential campaign in 2000. Not everyone remembers that he ran in the Democratic mm-hmm. primary against Al Gore. And um, a lot of the people that I had known from the Bradley campaign, um, you know, went to go work on the Obama campaign. And I had sort of been following Obama's career as a senator. And obviously, he had been um, rising in national politics really quickly. And so I first got pulled in just through some of the people um, that I knew. But then as I dug into the work that they were doing, started to realize that they're, they're doing something really different than a typical campaign. You know, they kind of approach, that was, you know, if you remember back in 2007, um, Hillary Clinton was the presumed front runner. And I remember when I was working on the Obama campaign, everyone's like, well, this guy's such a long shot. I mean, America's not ready for a black president and Hillary, the Clintons have the whole democratic establishment locked down. Like there's just no way this is going to happen. And, you know, he was out there because they didn't have a lot of money early on. They had to rely a lot on volunteers to develop their field operation. And so in some ways it was by the, the need for bootstrapping is what sparked the innovation that eventually led to the, um, field program that they developed. And I think that's what I thought was really exciting and interesting about it. Yeah. And, and you know, I've worked in politics for years and I think, and I didn't work in the Obama campaign or anything, but one thing that really caught me from the very beginning and looking at it was it reminded me in some ways of like the Christian coalition where it wasn't mm-hmm. just a transactional type of politics where you try to get out the vote at the last minute, you get a bunch of people to do that. It's kind of a push and pull type of thing. It's, I mean, it's kind of a push thing. It, they, you know, there wasn't any in politics community organizing, you know, bringing mm-hmm. people together and giving the power to people in, on the precinct level, neighborhood level. That really changed something, didn't it? Yeah. Did you see yeah. I mean, I think, so the theory that underlied the Obama campaign, which has um, been, you know, borne out by a lot of academic research is the idea that, um, you know, the power of neighbors talking to neighbors is, um, is so having neighbors talk to neighbors is more powerful than having a stranger talk to you and, and, and trying to get people out to vote. And so what they wanted to do at first, it was partly born of the lack of resources and funding, um, as, I, as I mentioned, but then as they, as they saw that it was working, it became um, the core of the field model they really developed this idea that we're not just trying to hire organizers who are going to be voter contact machines and spend all their time um, calling a bunch of voters. Instead, what we're trying to do is hire organizers who are actually going to identify, develop, and recruit leaders in their communities. And then those leaders are going to then organize their neighbors and their social circles to begin to reach out to the people that they live with. And so if a neighbor reaches out to me and says, hey, I want to talk to you about this guy that I'm really excited about, it's a really different thing than if a 
24 year old who lives on the other side of the country, who's just dropped into my community, calls me up out of the blue and, and asks me who I'm voting for. Right. And so they figured out how to leverage the practices of community organizing and put it into an electoral field program and do it at a scale that we just had never seen before. Where do you think that they they sort of got that novel idea? Like you said, it's necessity. But well, of course, you have Jeremy Berg, you have other people in the campaign, but they, they never ran campaigns like that. Do you think it came from the candidate or was there research out there that had looked at this? Of course, the civil rights movement, there are movements that have been right. involved, right. but where did they really, where's the, what's the genesis of yeah. the start? So, um, so I think there are a couple things. So first, the candidate himself obviously had had a background in community organizing. And so that helped because as these ideas began to bubble up from the field, um, you had leadership at the top who had um, were, uh, you know, sympathetic and aligned around the values. And so they were, um, so that was, that enabled it to scale within the campaign. Um, second, you had people like Jeremy Burr, who, you know, was a, he was a, a state director in 2008 and became the national um, field director in 2012, um, who had a background in organizing. He had come out of labor organizing, so he had a background in those kind of field practices. And you know, a lot of those kinds of people who are scattered throughout the campaign. Um, but then third, I think also, which I think is really interesting, is that they were, you know, they were one of the early campaigns that really was very data driven and, and social science driven in a way. And so what ended up happening was that, you know, early on in the 2008 primary, when Obama was was competing against Clinton, every state had a slightly different approach to developing its field campaign. And part of what they did was they just looked at the data that was coming out, you know? So there's, you know, one, one approach in, in um, Iowa, there was a different one in South Carolina, a different one in New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, you know, Virginia had a different approach, Nevada had a different one, like all these, you know, a lot of these early states just had different approaches that were really dependent on the leadership and strategy of the state directors. And as the primary was wrapping up, they had this moment in the campaign before they transitioned to the general, where they brought all the state directors together back to Chicago and said, okay, like, what have we learned? And what does that mean for what we're going to do in the general election? And what was so interesting is that when they looked at the data, what they realized, you know, is that, gosh, this neighborhood team model, it's really, it's bearing results um, at a scale and at a, um, at, a, at a pace that's different from these other states. And so let's double down on that. And, um, and so I think that they started early with this um, spirit of experimentation and innovation that was born partly from being the underdog, you know, partly just from the, um, I think the kind of attitude towards learning that pervaded the campaign. But then at a certain point, they were just looking at the data and the data were showing that if you have neighbors talking to neighbors, if you have people organized into teams, you know, if you have all these things in place that it eventually became the core of the Obama um, field model, that it's just yielding better results than, um, than in other situations. And what's really fascinating is, you know, sort of the perception that people have the differences between Democrats and Republicans. And really the Obama campaign, you know, most of these national campaigns are, are command and control situations and, and real top down. I'm not saying the Obama campaign was not, but the fact that they let states, you know, including especially in the early primary states all the way to the end, experiment and experiment and experiment and change things on their own and then take best practices and, and test against other things. That is pretty, that is extremely unusual. 
in a presidential campaign. And uh, I don't know of any campaign really in the history of, you know, in studying presidential campaigns that really had that type of system. And it really, you know, it just, what I'd really like to know, which I know you probably don't know, but, you know, you have the Chicago School of Economics, Mm -hmm. which is a total, you know, you know, a right wing, a lot of people, professors in my MBA program, you know, came from that school, but, but sort of that model and really the Koch brothers model of letting decisions be at the, at the down to the, the local level of things in a business, that's really kind of the, the model that that campaign had, um, which I, don't, I think people would not think of President Obama or Democrats as being that innovative and yeah. using that sort of business model. But I certainly yeah. see it. Yeah, you know, um, they had a motto in the, and I'm going to, I don't actually remember this it's in our book, but I haven't read the book in a long time. It's a, you know, they had a motto in the 2008 campaign that I think it was like respect, empower, include, or I can't remember exactly what the three words were, but you know, the idea is that um, we want our campaign to model the values that our candidate stands for, you know, and those, they're, they're, those are values around empowering voters, around being respectful of, of all people, about being inclusive of, of all different kinds of people or something like, I can't remember exactly what the three words were. and. Um, and I think it was really those values that drove that um, that that local innovation in a way, right? Because the idea is that I want to be respectful of the idea that local people know their community better than a 24-year-old organizer from, you know, another state is going to know that community. And so we can go in and we can say, hey, you know, you guys need to set up tables outside grocery stores. And someone who knows the community might say, but that's not where people go. Like in our community, people don't hang out at the grocery store. They go to the pancake house, you know, down the street, or they go to the coffee shop or, you know, or some, somewhere else. There's a, there's a neighborhood park or whatever. And, and people just know those, their, their own community better than the outside organizers do. So I think that was that notion of respecting and empowering people who had the immediate knowledge and the immediate relationships that really drove um, this idea. Um, but then, um, but then beyond that, you know, the challenge with any kind of campaign that's trying to do this, this work in the way that we're describing is you want to empower um, people to innovate in the ways that we're describing, but you also have to make sure that all the ships are sailing in the same direction, <laughs> you know? So you don't want all the innovation to go in 13 different directions because, uh, you know, you have to figure out how to make it all kind of cohere to a national strategy. And so that's where they were able to use the data in a way that I think was really helpful because they could say to a community, look, we've done the math and we figured out that if we're going to win, um, you know, Michigan, let's say we need to get 10,000 votes in your precinct, you know, and then we say, but we're not going to tell you how to get those 10,000 votes. We're just going to say that you're responsible for getting 10,000 votes. Now figure out how to do it. You know, so they could, they could use the data as a way of holding people accountable to a set of metrics that would feed up to supporting the national strategy. Um, but they respected the innovation and knowledge on the ground in terms of people's ability to figure out what's the best way to get those 10,000 votes in my community. And it might be different in my community than it would be, you know, two precincts over or something like that. Do you think that community organizer organizing is really a great equalizer because, you know, the old saying is you need, you need either money in politics or you need people. And the Obama campaign really had both. Mm -hmm. Uh, They put both of those things together. 
if 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 a camp if a candidate on a local level or let's say congressional race really got out and organized early and really paid attention to organizing, not just some of the the tried and true tactics that have worked in the past, do you think that that has a possibility of of leveling the playing field with some people? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, I think the the term that the word that organizers use is related to what you just said is that there are two forms of power in politics: organized people or organized money. And you can either be on the side mm-hmm. of organized money or on the side of organized people. <laughs> you know, and so if you're mm-hmm. not on the side of organized money, then your choice really is to go figure out um, how you organize people. But the ch- you know, but the key operative word there is organized people. You know, which is different than just people. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, um, it, you know, there, you know, just. Part of what was, um, I think, really innovative about the Obama campaign is that it's not just that they had this data-driven, community-centric approach to um, engaging people as voters in, and generating support for their candidate, but that they nested the neighborhood team leaders and their core volunteers in, into this collective enterprise so that people felt like they were part of something bigger than themselves. You know, And so when the going got tough, um, when it felt like Obama was going to lose, when it, you know, like all, you know, all these things that happen on any campaign, when the attack ads came, you know, which, you know, all these things that that happen, it was that commitment to the sense that I, I don't want to let my other neighbors down. I don't want to let the other people that I'm working with down that really held together these teams. And so, you know, come election day, when that was the culmination of all this work they had done, you know, the stories that they have are really that people who, um, People who were this, like the paid staff organizers were not the ones that were on the front lines turning out all these neighbors that they had been organizing. It was all volunteers, um, you know, and, and that, you know, really came out of the fact that they had built this network of volunteers who were really the heart of the campaign. And it was their commitment to a collective enterprise um, that that made what the Obama campaign do, um, you know, become something bigger than than it was. And I think that that's part of what's often misunderstood in campaigns. A lot of campaigns, I think, have tried to emulate the, the Obama model sort of miss that collective aspect of it. And so it just becomes like, how do I find lots of people who are going to talk to lots of other people in their community? But that still is, is you're, never, you're never leveraging the kind of energy or momentum that comes from making, turning an individualistic set of conversations into a collective enterprise. Yeah, and there's a story that you tell uh, that I love in your book about a golfer um, that, um, hurt his spinal cord, broke his neck, um, yeah. I believe in Iowa. Can you tell yeah. that story and how that was? Yeah. Um, so there's yeah. a guy named Alex Waters who, um, he was, I think he got up in Colorado actually, and he had gone to Iowa for college and he had gone to college sort of thinking that he was going to be a professional golfer. Like, you know, he wanted to be a professional athlete, like lots of young college kids. Right. And he went off and was playing golf and then, um, one weekend, I think in the in his freshman year, a friend said, "Hey, you know, a bunch of us are going to my um, parents' lake house for the weekend. Do you want to come?" He's like, "Sure, that sounds great." And so he went off to this lake house with his friends. And um, one evening, he's standing at the end of the dock, and it's kind of windy. And the wind came by, and it blew his hat off his head into the water. And he thought, "Shoot, you know, it's my favorite baseball cap. <laughs> you know, it's like if, you know, people who wear hats know that when you get that hat like perfectly fit on your head, like you don't want to give it up." And um, so he sees a cat floating in the water and he decides, you know what, I'm just going to jump in and get it. And he thought the water was 18 feet deep. So he could just jump right in and um, and get the cat. But it turned out to be much more shallow than that. It was probably more like two feet deep as opposed to 18 feet deep. And, um, you know, often when I tell the story, you see people cringe because you can imagine what happened, um, which is that 
um, you know, he broke his spinal cord and he was life flighted out of there and he had great medical care and recovered. But then you fast forward a few years and he's back in college in Iowa, but his, but you know, it's a very different life at that point because he's in a wheelchair. Um, he's, um, you know, not able to pursue his dreams of becoming a professional golfer in the same way that he had been in the past. And he was thinking about, you know, what it was that he was going to turn his energies to. And at that time, that's when Obama was this new, young, upstart senator that was just starting to run a presidential campaign. And he, you know, got involved and was excited. And so the campaign reached out eventually and said, hey, we want to hire you as a field organizer. And he said, you want me to be a field organizer? Like, you know, I love your guy, but with all due respect, I can't do any of the things that organizers can do because, you know, I can't walk a neighborhood. I can't dial phone numbers on a phone. I can't um, get paper off the printer to even know um, who the people are that I'm supposed to call. Like, I can't do any of these things. And basically they said, you know, that um, we're running a different kind of campaign here. Like what you're imagining is a traditional campaign where you hire a bunch of staff organizers and they become voter contact machines. And that's not what we want you to do. As a staff organizer, your job is to identify leaders in the community who already know their neighbors and know their um, community and then cultivate their skills and capacities and their ability to, to organize their neighbors essentially to support our campaign. And if you just look at the numbers of what he was able to produce, he became an organizer both in the 2008 and the 2012 campaign. He was hugely productive um, for the campaign because you can just count, you know, how many neighborhood teams did he organize? How many leaders did he support? And how many votes did those teams and communities yield? And he was a hugely productive organizer, not because he was a voter contact machine, but because he was really good at doing that work of identifying, developing, and um, cultivating leaders and and creating this collective context around them by putting them into teams. Yeah, I think that perfectly illustrates just how you can utilize everyone. But if you have that sort of model, then then you really don't need folks that are that are just going door to door. These people just yeah. really smartly recognize folks in a community right. and leverage their power and their yeah. knowledge. And that's that's a really different way of of thinking about it, not just get yeah. out the vote. Yeah, absolutely. It's a combination of doing that, but with the kind of like discipline and rigor of the organizing that mm-hmm. the Obama campaign brought to it. And it was, it was those two things together that made the, made the approach um, so powerful. Absolutely. And I think that every campaign I've ever been involved in, the, the hard part is, okay, we can get volunteers, but how do you really get volunteers? How do you get committed right. volunteers? Right. And I know some of the research that you've done with uh, pro-life and other, other groups, like some, it's sort of surprising, like why people and how people join organizations. And can you talk a little bit about that? Like, Yeah, this is actually not my research, but it's um, research of, of other people that I um, cite. There's a sociologist named Ziad Munson who um, wrote this great book called The Making of Pro-Life Activists, where he was trying to study... Um, like basically the people who are on the front lines of the pro-life movements. These are the people that run groups in their communities, that stand outside clinics and protests, that attend marches and rallies and, and you know, are kind of your super volunteers in, in any kind of movement. And what he wanted to do is sort of say, you know, we can take a snapshot in time of where those people are, but what we really want to understand is what was their trajectory that got them to that point? You know, people, most people aren't born being that kind of um, activist. So what happened that led them to that. And he did this really fascinating study um, that he unpacks in his book. But one of his most interesting findings is that of the people that he interviewed who are now the people on the front lines, the pro-life movement, something like 44% of them, so almost half of them, when they first joined the pro-life movement, 
they were either pro-choice or they were indifferent to issues of abortion, you know, and that should be shocking, right? Because most of our, most of the time when we go out and recruit people to join our movements, we assume that we're looking for people who already support us, right? So if I'm an environmentalist, I want to find other environmentalists. If I'm on the Obama campaign, I want to find people who support Obama, you know, and he found something totally different that, you know, half the people were pro-life when they joined the pro-life movement, right? But half of them were not. And so then the question is, well, what happened to the half that were not? Like, why did they come into the movement? And what he finds is that there were a lot of um, what we think of as kind of like episodic biographical reasons that made people open to doing something new. So it may have been that there is a working woman who had her first child and you know, all of a sudden became a stay-at-home mom or someone who had just switched churches or someone who had moved to a new community and was looking for friends or maybe someone who had just retired. Or, you know, there's sort of these things that happen in our lives that, you know, kind of open us up to searching for something new. And often in those opportunities, they would be invited to a meeting and and that would open things up, you know? Um, the other thing that happened a lot is that sometimes a friend would just invite you to a meeting. So someone might say, you know, hey, Matt, like I want you to um, come and, and, you know, why don't you come to this meeting like after church on Sunday? And I feel bad saying no. So it's like, all right, fine. Like I'll show up. I'm just going to like go once and I'm not going to come back. Right. And, um, and what was really interesting is that he found that, you know, people would kind of come into those meetings, into the movement because of these social reasons or because of these, um, you know, episodic kind of biographical reasons. But then what I find so fascinating is that once they're there, it's like, what happened in that meeting that made them want to keep coming back? You know, and, and I think, part of what his research shows and that's borne out with other people's research is that this idea of belonging is a really powerful thing. And normally we think that um, you have to believe before you can belong, right? You can't show up at a Sierra club meeting um, with your Range Rover, right? Because it's not environmentally appropriate or anything like that. And what he found instead is that you belong before you believe, you know? So first you create that sense of belonging and community with people and then people's views on um, what they believe begin to shift. And then the question is, well, because of what I believe, what must I do? And, and, you know, then some, some of these people kind of went on to become frontline activists in the movement itself. Yeah. I find that just extremely fascinating, but also common sense. And so what I think a lot of candidates need to do, a lot of us need to sort of stop and think before we start trying to recruit, think about what's it going to be like for those folks to come on board and Mm -hmm. to make it more of a social thing, make it because we're all social animals, but to make it like a community, Mm -hmm. any time to, to think through that whole process before we even reach out. But also don't discount people. Don't not reach out to folks because they don't, you know, a certain demographic or a certain um, way of thinking that all of us want to be asked, want to be involved. And so few of us really are asked yeah. to be involved. In right, exactly. Leadership. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the genius behind it. Yeah. No, I think that that idea of um, helping people sort of create that sense of belonging is a really powerful thing. And that's the kind of thing where it's like, it's really about making it feel like it's not just that I'm becoming friends with you, but I'm becoming friends with you and we're part of a bigger collective or a bigger team together, um, you know, and then, um, you know, I think a lot of possibilities open up for campaigns and candidates that are really underestimated in today's politics. Let me ask you this, the, the, with your research and all that you see, you know, democracy seems like it's under attack in a lot of ways mm-hmm. in this country all around the world. Do you think that um, and I, I believe it's deliberate, but do you think that with 
the tools that we have as citizens um, that we could push back, that people can push back on that um, better than ever before uh, because of organizing, because of those, those tools to organize. Do you think that that's, uh, are you seeing that happen? Because a lot of times like Brexit and, you know, votes like that, social media and organizing against something, a vote really yeah. worked. Do you see a pro-democracy movement, um, that possibility? So I think we have no choice but to push back, you know? And so um, I completely agree with you that part of what's happened is that our democracy has become really emaciated. And one of the ways in which it's become really emaciated is that um, for a lot of people, for too many people, as you point out, um, democracy is synonymous with elections, right? They have no sense that there's any way that I can have a voice in my community or that I can hold my leaders accountable to what I need except for every four years when a presidential election comes around and then I get one day when I get to vote and that's about it, right? Maybe I can donate money every now and then or something like that. And that's a real problem because democracy is actually supposed to be um, a, a, a much fuller system through which people are able to exercise voice over the things that they care about in their lives. And in moments like the pandemic that we're in right now, you see the problem with having an elections be synonymous with democracy, right? Because there are so many people that have real problems in their lives and they can't, we have no mechanisms to hold our leaders accountable. You know, the world is kind of turning upside down right now and none of us can really do anything except for hope that like the people at the top do the right thing. And that's not really a, a great position to be in. So the challenge in a lot of ways, I think that we see in the kind of campaigns that focus on organizing the ways that we've talked about is how do you create vehicles through which people begin to have that experience of not just being consumers, of public life, but actual agents in it, you know, and that was part of the power of the Obama campaign. That's the power of a lot of these campaigns. And, and so what, that, what does that mean to be a consumer versus an agent? Well, if I'm a consumer of public life, what that means is that I'm choosing between candidates and campaigns and policies in the same way that I choose cereal at the grocery store, right? So I go to the grocery store and I say, I want Lucky Charms. Ugh, I don't like Lucky Charms. I'm going to go for checks next time, you know, and I just, if I don't like your product, I just go to someone else's and, and you just leave or you switch whenever you don't like something. But if, um, but if I'm an agent of public life and I say, gosh, you know, I don't like Lucky Charms because they, you know, the marshmallows are too sweet <laughs> or whatever. And so instead of just leaving, I figure out how can I work with, you know, the company or the, or the campaign or the, or, the, um, or the organization, whatever it is, to sort of fight for what it is that I really want, you know? So I don't like what this candidate is doing. I want to be able to fight for what I think the candidate should, should be doing or what it should stand for. And I think part of what the Obama campaign did by creating and empowering these neighborhood teams is that people felt like for the first time they were given this opportunity to actually be agents in their community, not only to help shape the campaign, but to sort of help shape what their community looked like and what they were able to create together. And, and it's, it's true that not everyone wants that. Like, you know, a lot of people just want to go out and vote on, in November. And so I'm not saying everyone has to do that. But if you have a layer of people who are doing that work of being that middle tier of those volunteer leaders that really powered the campaign in the ways that we talked about, then that strengthens democracy overall. And I think that's what we've really lost in a lot of ways. Um, but we have the, there, you know, there are, are opportunities, not only in electoral campaigns, but in all sorts of other venues in public life to recreate that. And, um, I hope that we can, you know, I hope the pandemic is a wake up call in some ways for um, people to reinvest in that kind of work. 
Absolutely. I, I think there was a Washington Post article today that, that I think is interesting. All these, and we, we're cer- certainly seeing in Kentucky this anti, you know, stay at home movement. I guess that's what you'd call it. People that want to get back, mm-hmm. uh, back in and, and uh, sort of reverse some of these, these rules uh, that, that it looks organic, but th- there's, there's really a force behind it that's promoting it and supporting it. And that's sort of tea party uh, saw a lot of that too. Um, that that's, so that's really interesting that, that a yeah. lot of things look like it's organic that it's, it's people centered, that they're just going out there to, to meet at the public square, but there are really things underneath there that's, that's driving them out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's so many, yeah, there's so many things that um, people can um, that people can do differently and change. Um, so, um, you know, it's like with every crisis, there's also an opportunity, and so there there are two sides of the same coin. And so, I hope that one of the things that come out of the is the of the pandemic is is this opportunity to kind of rebuild public life. Um, and you know, I'll just sort of say on on that front too that um, you know, to me, part of the challenge too is that even as we have these debates and these protests around what's the best way to kind of, you know, end social distancing, what's our pathway out of the pandemic, you know, we have to, we have, if we accept the idea that like none of the ideas that are out there are perfect, right? And you know, no matter what you do, someone's going to be unhappy, right? I think we can all agree that that's probably the case. And so, so then it means that the question that we should be asking is not only what do we need to do, but what do we need to be doing so that we can learn what to do better next time, you know, so that this the kind of challenge of continuing to figure out how we rebuild our society in a post-pandemic world is going to be an ongoing conversation for a long time. And so how do we strengthen the processes and the structures and the systems that we have to create better options than what we have right now? And um, I think a lot of that depends on the kinds of things that you and I are talking about. Gotcha. What, what advice would you give candidates going forward? Um, I know you're not embedded in a campaign right now and, and you've, you've done, but, you, but you're in a unique position because you're an academic who also has political experience, who also uh, witnessed firsthand a different type of, of organizing in politics. Do you have any advice for candidates? Um, you know, because everybody wants to have a social movement. Everybody wants to, you know, even if they're running for a local office, they want to have a tribe that really supports them. Do you have any advice from your work that, that could help them? Um, that's a good question. I think the, the first thing I would say is that um, don't assume that people are props, right? That if you really want to build a people-centered politics, you have to think about how you can engage people in authentic ways. And, you know, what that means for different local campaigns might be different. But I think the first assumption that people, that candidates make sometimes is that, well, most people just are, you know, either don't want to be involved or just, they're just going to, we're going to use them as like a prop in our campaign. Um, and so, you know, figure out how you create a campaign where people can have authentic opportunities to be involved. And then, um, you know, don't underestimate the importance of having a structure and around that and a discipline around that, that um, then allow, it's like, so people like to tell the story of social movements, like uh, growing organically as if like some charismatic leader comes along and this is like some kind of story I told with Obama (laughs) and, you know, and Mm -hmm. then like the spark is lit and the fire kind of like takes off and, you know, behind every one of those fires that's been built, you know, to your point also about the stay-at-home protests and, or the, the anti-stay-at-home protests, um, is there's a real discipline in some organization that's behind it that's um, putting scaffolding and, dis- and structure around how you make that fire spread, you know? And so that's what candidates and campaigns need to be doing. It's not just about the organic growth, but it's about having the discipline to study what's working, figure out um, how it's, why it's working, and then um, scale it. Gotcha. So what are the things you're working on right now? 
Um, so I have another book coming out in December, um, assuming that the um, you know publishing houses aren't slowed down by this. And the book is called Prisons of the People, and it looks at um, what are the kinds of, so this moves a little bit away from electoral campaigns and looks more at sort of advocacy organizations and kind of asks what are um, the kinds of organizations that are most effective at translating the participation of ordinary people into actual political influence. Um, because one of the trends that we've been seeing um, to your point about democracy being hollowed out is that, you know, people can pour into the streets to protest something and nothing happens, like government doesn't respond. Um, and so, you know, what we want to do is sort of say, what if we were to look at the outliers? What if we were to look at the cases where people took action and the government actually did respond? Like, what are the commonalities that we see around them? And the common, one of the commonalities that we see is that all of them, to the conversation that we were just having, were embedded in this organization that kind of acted like a prism. You know, so what a prism does is it takes white light in and it turns it into, it projects it into a rainbow of light on the other side. And too many of our organizations are white light in, white light out. <laughs> you know, you just hope mm -hmm. that you have enough light that's kind of passing through it. And the organizations that were the most effective at turning participation into power took white light in, so they took people in. And then by engaging them in the in the series of experiences that kind of like the, what the pro-life movement did, we're able to sort of transform them into this vector of, political influence um and so the book unpacks the way that that works yeah that's that sounds fantastic and it's very important because you know our politics is supposed to you know we think uh that that you know we elect people and that we can go out and we can make change and that they'll be responsive to what people want and sometimes there's a real disconnect with that so yeah it's, yeah it's important research yeah no we um yeah we're excited about it so um Hopefully, uh, we'll, we'd love to come back and have another conversation with you about it once the book comes out at some point. <laughs> Absolutely. Professor Ann, thank you very much for being yeah, with us thank on the you show. I think a lot of what you said really will help a lot of candidates. I hope so. I look forward <laughs> to the conversation continuing. All right. Thank you very much. Talk to you later. Take care. Want to learn more campaign secrets? Want to learn how to start raising money for your campaign, even during these uncertain and unpredictable times? You want to know how to craft a winning campaign message? Then you need my free ebook, Campaign Fundraising Secrets. Head on over to campaignfundraisingsecrets.com now. Put in your name and email, and you can download a copy of this easy to read and implement guide. While you're there, sign up for your free seven day campaign secrets challenge. It'll walk you through how to campaign in the middle of this crisis, creating your fundraising system, crafting a great campaign message and much, much more. I hope you learned a lot today, and I'll see you next time on the Campaign Secrets Podcast. Take care.